There are two churches that have been in the news recently. One for having a crazy golf course in the church and, and the other for having a helter-skelter in the church. I don't know if anyone else has noticed these. A crazy golf course in the church and a helter-skelter in the church. Why have they done that? Well, it seems that they're desperate to get people in. And here's a way they might get people in. Trying to find something to bring people in because people generally don't think the church is relevant. Now, I've got to be careful, I'm not attacking those churches because it could be pointed out we have a bouncy castle twice a year and that is blatantly to try to get some children and their families in. So, I'm not attacking them. Uh, Helter Skelter is not that different from a bouncy castle. But the point is, people do think the Bible is irrelevant and the church is irrelevant. They think it's just a place of old traditions and vague sentimental ideas that you can listen to on a Sunday, but they're detached from the reality that hits you on a Monday. But today we're in part of the Bible that is very much about what we experience in day-to-day life. It's about troubles with the environment and difficulty in work and death. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. As usual, there are page numbers and some notes to help you if you want that on the green sheet. Genesis chapter 3, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, have rebelled against God. They said they'll go without him and God says this, verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's telling us here about troubles we face in this world and in this life. Now, if you have trouble in your body, you go to a doctor. And you hope the doctor won't give you paracetamol just to make the pain go away. You hope the doctor will investigate actually what's underlying this pain. And what's the underlying cause? And that then the doctor will find a cure for that underlying problem. And there are troubles in this world and troubles in this life. And we often ask, why? Why does God allow that? Why does this happen to those people? And it's a good question if it gets us, like the doctor, to investigate the underlying cause. And the Bible says the underlying cause is us humans are sinners in rebellion against God. And then the Bible says the cure is God has sent a saviour. So let's look at the three big troubles that we face that are in these verses and get to understand the why and then the what's the answer. What's the underlying cause and what is the cure? Three big troubles in these verses and the first is with the environment. Now God gave a good gift, a wonderful world, And it's stacked with beauty and stacked with variety and has in it all we need. And in Genesis 1, when it was made, 
It tells us repeatedly, it was good. And God looked at what he had made and it was good. And it ends with, and it was very good. And then in chapter 2, it gives further detail. God making the ideal home for mankind. And it's described as being just what we need. For example, chapter 2, verse 9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now you might not think about trees very much, but it's just its way of describing. God had put just what they needed. And it wasn't just what they needed. It was better. It even looked good. And the food tasted good. But now in chapter 3, God doesn't take away the gift. He brings trouble into the gift. Before, Adam was surrounded by trees, pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now, what will he be surrounded by? Verse 18, Genesis 3, verse 18. He'll be surrounded by thorns and thistles. And even, verse 17 says, the ground he stands on is cursed. You couldn't get anything much more fundamental than the ground you stand on, and even that is cursed. Why would God do that? Well, do notice it is God doing it. When verse 17 says cursed, the word is saying this isn't just a consequence of what Adam and Eve did. It's something God is actively doing. It's God as king justly punishing. Because the first people, Adam and Eve, have rebelled, have sinned, God justly punishes. And he isn't doing it in some arbitrary, random way. God didn't say, oh, look, they've gone wrong. Now, shall I put them in prison? Shall I give them a fine? Shall I send them on community service? Oh, no, I think I'll curse the ground. It wasn't like that, just picked out of the air. It fitted with what had happened. Have a look at how Adam's sin is described in verse 17. Something we might find a bit odd. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife. What do you think of that? (laughs) Now, it's not saying, don't listen to your wife, husbands. Please do not take it like that. That is not what it's saying. But he's saying this, Adam, you were supposed to be head of this relationship. You were supposed to be taking the lead. And in chapter 2, we find in particular, Adam, you were supposed to guard and protect your wife and the garden. But like so many husbands since, when danger came, instead of being manly and guarding, Adam, you took the easy option. You failed to take the lead and guard. You took the line of least resistance and said, oh, well, we'll go along with it. And look what's happened. Because you haven't guarded, damage has been done. Damage has been done to the relationship. We saw that last week in verse 16. And damage has been done to the garden you were supposed to guard. We find that in verse 17 and 18. You thought you were taking the easy option. It is going to prove far from the easy option. So God doesn't react in a random way. He reacts in an appropriate, a suitable way. And so there's trouble in the environment, the natural world around us. Now, that's explaining what's going on in verses 17 and 18, but what does it mean for us in 2019? And the answer is obvious. We get trouble in the environment. Whether it's Hurricane Dorian battering the Bahamas or it's drought in the Horn of Africa, trouble. 
Or if you read reports about global warming, have you read, you can't avoid them, can you? So much about global warming. It's pretty alarming stuff. I read something recently that said, and this wasn't from the alarmists, this was from someone warning against too much alarmism, but it still said, if we stopped producing any carbon emissions, actually stopped now producing any, world temperatures will still rise by one and a half degrees centigrade, which sounds very little, but will melt a lot of Arctic ice and cause an awful lot of climate trouble. Now, I don't have a clue if the science is true. I'm not qualified to comment on that. But I can can comment on this. The Bible doesn't give us reason to dismiss that. It says expect troubles with the environment. Does that mean do nothing about it? Oh, it will happen anyway, so not to worry. Let's do nothing because it's going to happen anyway. No, it doesn't mean that. Because Genesis 1 says we were put here to care for and guard the natural world. We must work at it. But we must work at it with this dose of realism. I know someone with cancer. And he is at the moment having chemotherapy to keep his cancer under control to keep down the effects and to prolong his life a bit. But he has been told that chemotherapy won't cure it. He's been told he can't be cured of his cancer. It's like if something else doesn't get him first, it will kill him. But he's still having chemo, it's still worth it to keep down the effects and to prolong his life a little. And Genesis 3 is saying our world is like that. Let's work at looking after it, but we won't cure it. To see the cure, we have to move forward in the Bible. Forward a long way until we get to a man. And he's hanging on the cross. And his name, of course, is Jesus. And he has thorns on his head. Why does he have thorns on his head? What's the significance of thorns? Where do thorns first come up in the Bible? It's in front of you. Verse 18. It's a sign of the curse on this world. And Jesus is bearing it on his head. The people who put it there didn't mean this, but God did. It's showing he's bearing the curse. He's taking it on himself. And because he has, one day that curse will be removed. And so Romans 8, which was read here last week, says when he returns, creation will be liberated. Liberated from all of this trouble. Remade with all of this frustration and decay and cursedness stripped away. Think of that. Now, think of a natural natural sight you've enjoyed looking at. It might be a mountain range. It might be a lovely sunset. It might be just a garden of flowers. Can you think of something beautiful you've seen in in the natural world? And if it was that beautiful under the curse, what will it be like when Jesus comes and remakes it? Will you be there? Let's move on to the second trouble we have. We've had the environment. Now we have work, trouble in work. Now God gave a good gift, work. It was a good gift given before anything went wrong. If you just look back at chapter 2, verse 15. 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It was a good gift. And partly because of this, it was being like God. 
being creative, bringing out the potential of the creation, instilling order in the natural world and taking satisfaction in in work. Those are all things you read God doing in Genesis 1. So work is being like God. It's a good gift. But now in Genesis 3, God doesn't take away the gift. He brings trouble into it. Have a look at the trouble in verse 17. Through painful toil. Work becomes painful toil. Verse 18, work becomes frustration. Frustrating. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. That's pretty frustrating if you're a gardener. Frustration in work. Verse 19, it becomes hard. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. You won't be able to do it without it being hard. Why would God do that? Well, he's punishing sin. And again, it isn't arbitrary. It isn't random. The woman Eve had said, I don't want this role God's given me. I'm not willing to be man's helper. I want to be in charge like God. That's what Eve had said. Adam had said, I don't want this role God's given me. I'm not willing to work for him. I want to be the boss. And to both, God said, you will still have the role I've given you. But you're going to get trouble with it. So God doesn't react in a random way. He reacts in an appropriate way. And so there is trouble in our work. What does this mean for us today? Well, you all know it, don't you? You all know. Because, well, how do you experience toil, frustration and trouble in your work? I expect you're all able to think of some ways. For some of you, it might be lessons at school that are repetitive and boring. I hope they're not all, but there's bound to be some that are. It might be there are dishes to clean again and again and again. You've done it once, it seems almost straight away it's got to be done again. Or it might be a computer that crashes and loses all those files you've put so much work into. It might be sitting in traffic jams, coping with broken machinery and with irritated work colleagues. Genesis 3 says... That's the sort of stuff we have to expect. Does that mean do nothing to improve it? Does that mean never look for a job that you might enjoy? No. The book of Ecclesiastes is helpful on this. It's a very strange book, but it's a very helpful book. And it's about living in this broken world. And it has this repeated phrase. It says, find the good in your toil. That's Genesis 1 to 3 language. It says it's toil. Don't expect it to be anything other than toil, but it says there's still good you can find in it, and it's worth looking for it. So how do you get through a hard day's work? If it's a hard day, how do you get through it? There's various ways, but I expect a large amount of it is this, looking forward to what it might be the evening off, or looking forward to the weekend, or looking forward to that holiday booked, Or maybe even looking forward to retiring and getting out of that work. And none of those are wrong. But the evening, the weekend, the holiday and even the retirement are soon gone and often disappoint. We need something bigger to look forward to. Do you know that many of the Christians in the New Testament were slaves? And they were told to keep going at their work by looking forward but with a higher standard. Our problem isn't that we expect too much. Our problem is we often set our sights too low. 
And they were told, look forward to something much better. I'll read it to you. Colossians 3, these slaves were told, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. They're told, look forward to what Jesus will give you. Look forward to him coming back and what is it he will give you? Well, if if you belong to him, if you're trusting him, the last chapter of the Bible tells you. That's why it was read to us. Do you remember it? It says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. I wonder, what do you expect heaven to be like? Many have the idea, Christian offers you eternal life that's like an unending church service. Do you think of it like that? Or or some vague idea that we're these spirit beings that are just being floaty somewhere. But the Bible says, no, Jesus is going to remake this world. It will be very physical. And he's going to remake your body. And there we will serve him. We will work, but it won't be toil. Because the curse has been removed. It will be the satisfaction of God-like work given back to us. Will you be there? Trouble in the environment, trouble in work, and what's the third trouble in verses 17 to 19? It's at the end of verse 19. Death. The ultimate trouble. Now, God gave a good gift, life. Just look back at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Sounds very strange to us, but it's telling us we are chemicals. We are physical beings made of chemicals, but we're more than just chemicals. We have life that comes from God. God has put it into us. We'd call it body and soul. I'm not sure that that's the right language, but that's the language we got used to. Chemicals and life from God. But now in Genesis 3, God doesn't take away the gift, at least not yet. But he says it will end. He says the life he gave will be taken away and will disintegrate back into those chemicals. That's what verse 19 says. Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Sounds nasty. Why would God do that? Well, again, it's not arbitrary or random. What had Adam done? Verse 17. What had he done? Verse 17. You've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat of it. And what had God said about eating from that tree? Rather neatly, it's in verse 17 of chapter 2. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And like we do when we sin, Adam and Eve had said, no, it will be all right. I'm sure it will work out all right. We know better than the life giver, than the one who breathed life into us. But if you separate yourself from the life giver, you get death. Now, at this point, I want to step aside from the main message for a moment and comment on something I haven't commented on so far in all of this series on Genesis 1 to 3. 
Can you think of a controversial subject I've avoided so far in Genesis 1 to 3? Yeah, you can, can't you? Creation and evolution. Did God make the world as we now know it through millions of years of evolution? Now, why am I commenting on it now? Well, because the key question is, was there death before mankind sinned? Evolution involves death, an awful lot of death. Was there any death before this verse, Genesis 3, verse 19? Now, I think there wasn't. I think there are good reasons from the Bible to say animals didn't die before Adam sinned. One of the reasons is the first point, trouble in the environment. At verse 17, God changed the world. It started to decay and degrade in a way it hadn't before. And it won't when Jesus remakes it. And I think there are a few other good reasons to say, no, God didn't make the world through evolution. But let's be careful about this. Because what sort of death is coming in in verse 19? What sort of death is it in verse 19? It's human death. And when 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans, what is it, 5, comments on this, in other words, when the New Testament comments on this, what sort of death does it say Adam caused? Human death. And interestingly, when Isaiah prophesies God's going to remake this world and it's going to be perfect, do you know one of the things he says we're going to do? Eat meat. Lovely feast of meat. Now, it might be a picture, but what am I doing here? Trying to confuse you? (laughs) Trying to stir up a load of trouble? No, I hope not. I'm trying to do this. I'm saying, actually, I don't think God made the world through evolution, and I think there are ways that that's problematic if you believe it. But there are difficult issues here. And it's not as straightforward as some people make out. And all I'm doing here is not trying to confuse you, but trying to appeal. Christians don't fall out over it. Christians, be careful how you phrase this. Don't call a Christian who doesn't believe in evolution a scientific illiterate, just like a flat earther. And don't call Christians who believe in evolution gospel deniers, who've undermined the whole Bible. It's not as straightforward as that. I'm not trying to shift what we believe on it. I'm just trying to appeal to us to be careful what we say about it and to be in unity, even though there may be disagreements here over it. Okay, I was stepping out of my main message there because I thought I've got to at some point. Let's get back to the main message. What does Genesis 3 verse 19 mean for us today? Now, that is an extremely simple question. It means we die. Very simple answer. It means we die. I referred earlier to someone I know who has cancer. I remember him saying, there is a famous saying that there are two things in life we can't avoid. Do you know the two things it said we can't avoid? Death and taxes. Now, this person was a banker to very rich people in Switzerland, and he said he's discovered you can avoid taxes. But through his cancer, he's discovered you can't avoid death. That's really obvious. But have you faced up to it? It's really obvious, but we often don't prepare for it. 
I had an uncle who used to sell various financial instruments or whatever you call it. I remember him coming around and trying to persuade my dad to buy some. He said, you can have this one so you can get you know, and invest for the next five years and make some money in five years' time. You can have this one in case you fall ill and can't do your job. You can have this one so that you can get some money when you retire and be well off when you retire. And my dad said, and what have you got ready for when you die? And I was a teenage boy sitting there and... Oh, Dad, did you have to say that? I was rather embarrassed. But he was right. And my uncle knew what he was getting at. As my dad pressed the point home, what have you got ready for when you die? What will happen to you when you die? Where will you go? What will God's verdict on your life be? Do you know? Are you sure? You make sure of the destination when you're going on holiday. You make sure of the destination before you're getting on a train. What about this final irreversible journey? Oh, you say, I hope I'll be all right. No, no, no. No, vague hope isn't good enough. I presume none of you play Russian roulette in the vague hope that the the gun will fire a blank that time. You need to know. And you can know. You can know. It's back to that man with thorns on his head. Jesus dying on the cross, taking the curse for us, including this curse, death. And as he did so, a man next to him simply said, Jesus, remember me. In other words, Jesus, death is coming for me. I need you. And Jesus replied to him, I tell you today, You will be with me in paradise. Not, I'll give you some vague hope it might turn out all right. You will. You will. That man still died. Horribly. And his body still disintegrated. But his soul went to be with Jesus in paradise and has been there ever since. And one day his body will be remade and reunited to that soul. Death has been conquered for him. And he will be with Jesus forever. Will you be there? Well, these verses have told us about troubles that we all face. None of us are exempt from these troubles. So when you see people are killed by hurricanes in the Bahamas, or when your job is stressful, or when you're confronted by death of someone you love, Do you ask why? Why does it have to be this way? Why does this happen? It's a good question. Don't stop asking it. And the answer is sin. Not the greatest sufferers are the greatest sinners. No, no, doesn't say that. But mankind's sin against the life giver has caused a deadly response. And the answer to that sin is the saviour, Jesus. Do you belong to him? Are you trusting him? And if you are, by all means work to improve the environment. By all means try to get a good job. By all means do your exercise and eat healthily so you don't die young. But don't be like our society, putting too high a hope in these things. None of them will cure the problem. None of them are good enough. Raise your sights higher. Jesus gives better. Keep your focus on what he gives. He's going to remake this world with all of that curse removed. Will you be there?